This morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 13 through verse 21. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? And so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then those who will then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Seek the Lord's blessing on this his holy word. Gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for your word, we thank you that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. As we come to this particular passage this morning, we pray for your spirit to lead us and guide us, to give us wisdom and understanding, and that as your spirit goes forth with your word, we do pray that it would find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil, which brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now, Lord, for your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As Christians, we are to find our satisfaction and contentment in the Lord and in the good gifts that come to us from His gracious hands. And we take some time to count our blessings we quickly realize that the Lord truly provides all that we really need. And of course, this is in contrast to the world, which is never satisfied and and content with anything. Advertisers, of course, understand this, which is why they know they can sell products by just slapping a, a label on something, saying new, improved, bigger, better, more, healthier. See, they count on people not being content and they tap into that old desire of the flesh that simply wants something more. In other words, they tap into covetousness and greed. And we see these desires expressed all around us, not just in, uh, in advertising. Of course, everyone wants more than what they have. The rich want more wealth and power and influence. The poor want their fair share of what the rich enjoy. 
And of course, as we know, this spills over even into public policy. Even though some complain that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, both the rich and the poor and every class in between are never really satisfied with what they have. And they just desire more. Of course, this is the irony of this movement toward uh, the redistribution of wealth. And the very thing uh, that, uh, that they uh, condemn in the rich and in these corporations is the very thing on display of those that are advancing this agenda. And ultimately we know they care very little for the truly poor. They just want a bigger slice of the pie for themselves. Well, this is part of the corruption of our sinful human nature. Of course, we know greed isn't just a problem out there in the world. It can also be a problem in the church, even in our own lives. Much of the false prosperity gospel is built around greed and uh, coveting what you don't have. And it's certainly displayed in the lavish lifestyles of its proponents. But even we may call everyday Christians. For them, greed and covetousness can be a great temptation. And so this morning in our series on challenges to Christian living from Luke chapter 12, we consider the danger of greed. And in our passage this morning, it all begins with a demand from a man in the crowd. Now, Jesus has been teaching his disciples and the crowds, and he's been warning them, uh, as we considered last time, about the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees and calling his followers to not be afraid of the truth of expressing their faith or not being afraid of what man could do to them. But he is now suddenly interrupted by a man in verse 13 who cries out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And we know that with these huge crowds that uh, often follow Jesus, there were often many interruptions. There were many cries from the people. Oftentimes, it were, there were cries for help, cries for, for healing, or even praises and blessings. But this man's interruption seems very out of place. Because his demand has nothing to do with what Jesus has been talking about. In fact, it's clear that he wasn't even listening very well to Jesus because Jesus had just finished challenging the people to consider that the condition of their soul is far more important than their lives and the things of this world. But of course the man had his own agenda. For whatever reason he felt as though his brother wasn't dealing fairly with him. Now we have no further details about this situation other than what the man states here. We do know that the law of Moses provided some basic guidelines for inheritance. For example, it was typical that the eldest son would usually receive a double portion of the inheritance. And so we wonder here, had this man, had he been rejected and cast out of the family for some reason and was now returning to demand his fair share? Or did he have a legitimate complaint because his brother was withholding a portion of the inheritance that was rightfully his? We just don't know. But what we do know, again, is that his demand just comes out of the blue and 
seems very far out of place. Well, Jesus has uh, two responses to his demand. First, Jesus tells the man that he isn't the judge of these matters. He says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, what's interesting here is, of course, that we know Jesus will one day, that he will sit as judge of all the earth, and he will rule over all things with his perfect justice. But he hadn't ascended to that position yet. He hadn't ascended to the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. And so he will be one day appointed as a judge, but not now. But in following with his teaching, where again he emphasized the conditions, the condition of man's immortal soul over the fate of man's mortal body, Jesus seeks to show this man that he hasn't come for such earthly matters as this. There are others who dealt with these things. Many people often took these kinds of concerns to, uh, to the rabbis, for example, uh, and to other counselors to seek their help and advice and seek reconciliation in these matters. And there were also other religious and civil authorities that could have helped this man. But Jesus makes clear this wasn't the purpose for which he came. He had come to proclaim the gospel, to heal the sick and comfort those who mourn, to save the lost and to forgive the sins of sinners. The man had misunderstood who Jesus was. He just assumed that Jesus was like any other rabbi. He didn't understand that Jesus had the words for eternal life. Of course, we know people misjudge Jesus in the same way today. They uphold Him as a prophet and teacher, and they may even invoke Him in the cause of social justice. Some even using the account of Jesus uh, cleansing the temple as, uh, to show His opposition against corporate greed and against the rich. Now certainly we know Jesus is against injustice. He is against greed, and He condemns theft and corruption in both personal lives and even in business practices. But these same people who tout Jesus for their cause, they never give a thought to the heart change that Jesus requires. They only want the outward change of behavior, not the inward repentance from sin and lies devoted to obedience to God's law and to Christ's commands. They only want a part of Jesus. They don't want the whole package. And likewise, This man wasn't interested in faith and repentance. Ultimately, what he was looking for was a small claims court judge who was going to rule in his favor. He didn't acknowledge Jesus as the one who would be the supreme judge of all the earth. And so Jesus basically tells him, I'm not who you want me to be. Well, the second response that Jesus makes to this man goes deeper. We know that Jesus is the discerner of hearts, that He sees right through our exteriors and and is able to appear deep into our hearts and even to the hearts of this man. And so what Jesus says in verse 15 isn't just for this man, it's also for His brother who may be with Him. And it's not just for them, it's for all who are listening. It's even a warning for those of us here today. Jesus says, take heed... And beware of covetousness. 
Now note how he emphasizes the importance of this warning. Not only take heed, but also beware of covetousness. Not only know it's out there, that it's ready to to ensnare you. Don't just be aware of it, but be prepared to vigorously defend your heart against every form of covetousness and greed. Jesus knows the human heart. He knows that greed is a great stumbling block for humanity. He knows that the heart of man is given to coveting what he doesn't have. In fact, it was coveting and and greed that was a part of the first sin. Remember how the serpent deceived Eve into thinking that God was withholding something better from from her and Adam. And and she became greedy and, and desirous and envious for what she didn't have or what she perceived she didn't have. Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And she took from its fruit and ate and gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Of course, ever since then, greed and its counterparts, envy and covetousness, have plagued all of mankind. But greed isn't only a stumbling block to mankind in general. But even for the one who seeks to live a true Christian life, greed, envy, and covetousness can be a snare and a trap to us. Greed is is literally a thirst for more. And if you would honestly examine your own hearts and your own lives at this point, I won't ask for examples, but who hasn't been tempted by the desire to want something bigger, something better, something greater, something newer, something in more abundance than what you've already been given? That's a common temptation. And so really no one is excused. Greed in all its forms is a sin that plagues everyone. The Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet. Westminster Larger Catechism Question and answer 148 says that the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate emotions and affections to anything that is his. See, at the root of greed and covetousness is a discontented heart that is not being satisfied with what you have. And then add to this is the comparison of yourselves to your neighbor and and what they have. Thinking that they have something better and and more desirable than what you have. Kind of an insecurity aspect in that regard. And so the temptation to be discontent with what you have and the desire to want to keep up with your neighbors, again, that's another thing that's just quite common. We think that the car, the the clothes, the house, the family, the job, the income, the land, the equipment, the game console, or anything else that our neighbor has is better than what we have. And then here's what what often happens. See, we not only long to have what they have, but oftentimes we desire to have something that's even better to one-up them. 
so that they will now be envious of us. And so we see what happens here is is that this begins in a, a vicious cycle of greed where the neighbors are constantly going back and forth trying to outdo one another. And again, Christians aren't immune to falling into this. And so this is what we must guard against. And so before we start complaining about the greed of others, the wealthy and the corporations, we should first be inquiring of ourselves. Am I greedy? Am I envious of others? Am I unhappy with what I have? Am I content with all that God has given me and blessed me with? As Jesus tells us in another place in Matthew 7, and we should deal with the timbers in our own eyes before we take the speck out of someone else's eye. Jesus goes on here to expose the, the faulty thinking behind greed. That life consists of the abundance of possessions. Right? That's, that's what stands behind greed. We misunderstand what life is all about. In the second part of verse 15, Jesus challenges, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. The problem with greed is that it puts the value of life in the wrong place. Wealth, money, or riches isn't what makes the man or the woman. But this is exactly how we often define people. We put them into classes. There's the upper class, the middle class, and the lower class, and then we make judgments based upon this classification. But the truth is, we don't receive value and worth from being in a certain economic class because of what we have or what we don't have. Our value and worth comes from the fact that we are created in the image of our God. And our value comes in whether we have a right relationship with that God. So Jesus is saying here, it isn't he who has the most toys wins. Because even if you had everything you could ever want or need, you still wouldn't be able to have any more or any less of the one thing that can't be bought or sold. Your life. Having more stuff can't prolong your life. In fact, when you think about it, having more stuff doesn't even make you happy. And so why would you use it as a standard to measure the value of your life? And again, this, is, this man here is, is missing the boat. If he thinks a, a portion of the inheritance is going to significantly improve his life, well, then he is misguided. Now, yes, his life in the here and now may be improved, at least for a time, until the money's all gone. But we've already seen that Jesus' chief concern is the condition of the soul and where people will spend eternity, not in how comfortable they are in this life. Jesus illustrates this important point with a parable, often called the parable of the rich fool in verses 16 through 20. So there was a a wealthy man whose land was very fertile, so fertile that it produced a crop much larger than he expected. And, of course, it turns out that he was uh, unprepared for this. 
And he says, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? And so with such a great abundance, he, he didn't have any place to put the abundance of crops that he was going to be able to reap. And so he comes up with a plan. You know, I'm going to tear down these old barns and I'm going to make uh, build bigger ones so that I'm going to have plenty of room to store all my crops and my goods. But his conversation with himself is not over as he adds in verse 19. Then I'll say, I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. (coughs) So with such abundance, he figures that he's going to be able to retire early and live a life of ease. Because his soul, that is his life, will be sustained by the many goods that he has accumulated and stored up in these large new barns. In other words, he's doing exactly what Jesus just condemned, making his possessions the sum and substance of his life. But there's one important thing this man hasn't considered, something or rather someone he has completely left out of the equation. He's given no regard to God. And Jesus continues the parable in verse 20. In the middle of the night, God says to the man, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? When the bank calls and says the payment is due, well, the payment is due and you better pay it. When God says your number is up, that it's your time, well, your number is up. Death comes no matter what your plans and your purposes. And so the man dies. And all that he has stored up for himself will now be given to others. Well, there's several important lessons that we can learn from the man in this parable and his character, especially how not to be. Right, first, we see that he was presumptuous. Right, he made his plans without any thought or regard to God. He, he lived his life as if he was the captain of his own ship, the one who would create his own destiny. He assumed that his life would last for many years. But God had a different plan. And of course, we know people do the very same thing today whether in relation to accumulating wealth or just in connection with life in general. Right? They live their lives as if there were not a God who has called, a, called His creatures to abide by His law. But these must be warned and cautioned. That even though they give no thought to God and how they live their lives, they will one day have to appear before that God. And they will have to give an account to Him. And He will call them when their day is done. But secondly, we see that this man was very selfish. And he was going to have this great excess, right? So that's why he's building these larger barns. But never once did he think about others. Never once did he consider that perhaps there was a family member, a friend or a neighbor who would need provision. You see, it was all about him. 
And we see this even demonstrated in the, in the text, and depending on the, the translation, but the first person singular pronoun is used 12 times. Eight eyes and four my's. And so he's obsessed with himself. And he was greedy, like Ebenezer Scrooge. He showed no kindness or charity toward others. Because all that he had amassed, his entire empire of grain and goods, was all for himself. And thirdly, we note that he was ungrateful for what he had been given, for what had been given to him. And he was expecting an abundant crop because his land yielded plentifully. Right? Even more than he could have imagined at the probably at the, the time of planting. But God had greatly blessed this man by giving him land that was rich and fertile. He brought the rain to water those crops and the sun to cause them to grow. But never once does this man give thanks to God or offer some of his abundant harvest as a thank offering in the temple. Now we should note here that there's nothing wrong with having rich, fertile land and having an abundant crop or even having large new barns. But if we don't acknowledge, if we don't acknowledge that these things and every other good and perfect gift that we receive comes to us from our Father in Heaven, then we're ungrateful and we're sinning against our good and generous God. Fourthly, we see that this man was extremely self-indulgent. And of course, this goes along with his his hoarding and his selfishness, right? He wanted to live a, a life of ease and comfort. He wanted his life to be filled with food, drink, and every pleasure that money can buy. Again, not worried about what was going on with other people and those who may be in need around him. Not mindful of God's charge that we are to work and labor for God's glory. He just wanted to live this life of ease for his own pleasure. And so the basic lesson we learn from this parable is simply, don't be this way, right? Don't be this man. Don't be presumptuous about your life. Don't be selfish. Don't be ungrateful. Don't be self-indulgent. And certainly, don't be greedy for more than what you have. But Jesus has a more pointed word of instruction for this man and those like him. <clears throat> He's foolish. Verse 20. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? The man is a fool. He's built all this wealth and accumulated so much in excess that he can have a life of ease. But the irony is that he'll never enjoy his retirement, not even one day of it. In fact, you get the impression here that the crops that he was planning on never got put in those barns he built because he died before he finished building them. (coughs) And so he didn't even get to enjoy any of that abundant crop that had been provided him. 
because his life consists, or he realized that life consists, well, now he would realize life consists of much more than wealth and possessions. And God has now required his life. Well, Jesus now points this lesson of the parable back to this man who had interrupted him and to his brother and to the crowd and even to us. Verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It is the same thing will happen to the one who is greedy and selfish. Whether it's the CEOs of, of large uh, corporations, those who are uh, demanding the rich pay everything, those who are demanding, even as this man was, the share of an inheritance, or even those of us here today in our daily struggles with the sins of greed, envy, covetousness, and selfishness. See, if we put all our focus and energy on building a future in this life to the extent where we neglect the condition of our souls and where we'll spend eternity, well, then we're fools. Once God says our time is up, that's it. All our plans for the future will be erased and everything that we've accumulated to enjoy in the future is is going to be taken from us. It's going to be given to others to enjoy. For whether we end up in heaven or hell, we know that we can't take any of it with us. The things of this life will stay in this life. But the matters of the heart and the soul are what truly endure forever and ever. This man had prepared everything for this life. And he was very rich. But he was not prepared for eternity because he was not rich toward God, as Jesus concludes here. Now, what does it mean to be rich toward God? Well, first, obviously, it means that you aren't greedy, envious, covetous of money, wealth, or possessions. A second, being rich toward God also means that you're content with whatever God chooses to give to you, and acknowledging that everything we have is a gracious Wonderful gift given to us from the Father's hands. And we should enjoy what we have. And we should be content with it. And we should be thankful for it. Because they are good gifts. A third being rich toward God means that you advocate for justice. right? Looking out especially for the poor and needy. And we should certainly condemn the greed and envy of our society and culture. But we do so not in order to make demands then to get our fair share, but because God's law forbids greed and covetousness. And if we would seek justice without God, it would lead to tyranny. Well, fourth, being rich toward God means... You should strive to be generous with whatever God has given you, however great or however small. We should be generous with our time, our talents, and our treasures because we remember how generous God has been to us through Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who left behind His glorious position in heaven became flesh, 
humbling Himself, even enduring the painful and shameful death of the cross, so that we might have the richness of God's forgiveness, and that we might enjoy the abundance of eternal life in Him. If God has been so rich and generous toward us, well, we certainly ought to do the same for His glory. And this leads to the final way that we become rich toward God. And it is by becoming rich in faith. As we daily rely upon the grace of God. We're not to put our trust in wealth and possessions. Because we know that these things will quickly pass away. We're not to amass possessions and and build a life of ease. Because we know that our life is much more than our stuff. But we're to put our faith, our hope, and our trust in the Lord our God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. The one who provides for all that we truly need from His gracious hands. Brothers and sisters, if we'd be greedy for anything, let's be greedy for the grace of God which He so freely and abundantly gives to us and renews for us each day through His Spirit. Let's desire God's grace, mercy, and goodness more and more in our lives as we strive to fully depend upon Him who alone can truly and fully satisfy all our needs. Beloved of God, may you be so rich toward God that He alone will be both glorified in you and through you. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for this reminder that greed and covetousness and envy, that these are great challenges that we, if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with in our own lives in a variety of ways. You know our hearts, Lord. You know where our weaknesses lie in this regard. And as we prayed before, we pray that even now your spirit would help us to examine our hearts. To bring out that offensive way in us. That we might even confess that before you even now in our hearts. And that we would receive the grace and the mercy of your forgiveness. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Giving his life for us on the cross as the perfect satisfaction for our sins. Father, we praise You and thank You for every good and perfect gift that You have provided for us. And we pray that You would work within us a true sense of contentment in You and with what You have given to us. And that even in that contentment, and even if we have very little but that you would encourage us to be to have that generous spirit which you have so richly and abundantly demonstrated to us with your great love poured out upon us through Jesus Christ Father we praise you and thank you for this these things and this reminder from your word we pray that even now your spirit would draw us all closer to yourself as you apply these truths to our hearts for your glory. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.